Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. And welcome to 2020. I'm Mike Wong, as always, and I'm excited to be back at the intersection of science and Star Trek with you. This academic quarter is a busy one for me. I'm teaching an astrobiology class for science majors at the University of Washington. And honestly, that is soaking up most of my precious time, just like an M113 creature sucks salt from its prey. So that's just to say, podcast episodes may be sporadic early on this year, but we have such an exciting year of Star Trek ahead of us and so many scientific stories to cover. If there's ever a brief hiatus, rest assured, Strange New Worlds is going nowhere. All right, on to today's show. We're kicking off the new year in style with Dr. Jim Davenport as my guest. He's an astronomer at the University of Washington. Jim's research program involves many aspects of astronomy and data science, and today we are talking about reimagining SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. That topic is near and dear to both of our hearts. Jim also runs his astrovlog on YouTube, which takes a really personal look at what it's like to live the life of a professional astronomer. If you have found this podcast through astrovlog, welcome. If you haven't ever seen astrovlog, shame on you. No, just kidding. I highly recommend that series if you're at all curious to know what we do all day. Spoiler alert, it's mostly drinking coffee. So, without further ado, Jim Davenport on SETI. I'm here with Dr. Jim Davenport, and we are about to talk about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, or SETI. Um, I think this is one of the first times on Strange New Worlds that we've actually discussed this topic as our main topic for the episode, so I'm really excited to be speaking to you about this. I find that shocking, because it seems like the topical overlap between SETI and Star Trek would be so ripe. Yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm excited to be the inaugural voyage of this topic. Right. Two and a half years into the journey, we're finally talking about SETI. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really interesting observation, actually, because the way I wanted to enter this episode, uh, this conversation about SETI, was to talk about when I was a kid, growing up, thinking about space and astronomy and like what I might want to be when I grow up, like astrophysicists or astronaut or, you know, person who looks for aliens. I remember thinking of SETI as this super hardcore scientific endeavor. And uh, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, so we would do like an annual field trip when I was a kid to NASA Ames. And I think it was at one of those field trips when one of the scientists introduced SETI at home. I was just going to gonna ask if you did SETI at home. I, I <laughs> was introduced to it, but then never took any action on it. Oh. Um, yeah, so for the listeners, um, SETI at home is this program that you could download. Is it still up, up there? Can yeah, you still... it's, its new branding is okay. called Boink. Boink. Okay, that's a change. <laughs> it in stands for something because it's not just SETI anymore. They've extended extended the idea to other okay. scientific problems. Okay. So it stands for something very clever. I don't know what it is. So you can go and download Boink, or back in the '90s, you could download SETI at home, and uh, you could 
help in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And I thought this was just like a fantastic idea. Of course, I was a kid, so I got home and completely forgot about it. <laughs> Went outside and played basketball or something. <laughs> um, but but yeah, that was always in the back of my mind. Like, yeah, one, one day if I chose to do this and I worked hard and I got enough lucky breaks, I could grow up and be a SETI astronomer. Fast forward 20 years or so, and here I am in an astronomy department in an astrobiology program. And I can pretty safely say that I actually don't know a single person who spends a majority of their scientific time doing SETI. So what's up with that? Yeah, something happened, right? Like something happened to that little dream inside of us when we were kids that like, I don't know, the brutality of adulthood set in and now we have to all like pay our rent or something. <laughs> Uh, and I think actually that, you know, that's cheeky, but that's actually the answer is that sometime in the 90s, Congress basically put the brakes on SETI funding. They didn't want to fund it anymore. They saw it as one of these frivolous bridges to nowhere, and they didn't want to fund it anymore. And so NASA funding evaporated, effectively NSF funding evaporated. And so I think Jason Wright at Penn State has said that there's been roughly one FTE, one full-time employment per year of people in the United States working on SETI for the last 20 years. Wow. It's been at about that level. So that means, to translate that for everybody, if you summed up all of the people who are spending a fraction of their time on SETI, it would sum up to one person spending their entire time on SETI. And I I don't know if that's optimistic or pessimistic based on the reality of it. Like, I think there are some years when nobody's working on it. (laughs) (laughs) And there are some times when a lot of people have good ideas and they're thinking about it and cool things happen that catch our imagination and a bunch of people will iterate on this or will put ideas out there. Um, There is effort elsewhere in the world, which is relieving. Um, So that's good. There are other people working on it. But yeah, it's been really, it's been really stagnant. So I think that's why. And what's risen up in its place and not like it's in competition with the idea uh, but what's sort of risen up in its place is this discipline of astrobiology. Um, and I, as not, I would say, not characterize myself as an astrobiologist, but as sort of an external astrobiology fan, I'm fascinated that astrobiology has not embraced SETI. And I think, I speculate, that that has been tactical to make funding more palatable. Interesting. That they, they want to distinguish themselves for specifically not doing SETI so that they can get serious research money for these quote-unquote serious problems of like modeling planetary atmospheres and speculating about new worlds and what life might be like and how life might survive. All the things that would be prerequisite to detecting intelligent so-called little green men. Yeah. But, you know, drawing that distinction so that they actually can get funding. I think it's been an important uh, branding item for astrobiology. It's fascinating to think about where that line is drawn in in nature, in the biosphere of things. Um, Astrobiology is this still very fledgling field, but it's, you know, faced the issues of the origin of life and the habitability for extremophile organisms, these microscopic bacteria and archaea that live in hot springs and so forth. And that is considered serious science. And the detection of biosignatures of these more simple life forms on other worlds is also considered serious science. But all of a sudden, once you ask the question, is there intelligent life on another world, there's this laugh factor associated with it. Do you think science fiction actually plays a role in generating this laugh factor, this this sort of within the scientific community not taking 
the search for extraterrestrial intelligence seriously. Yeah, and I think that's why this is a really interesting venue to talk about this. Two real scientists, we'll characterize ourselves as real scientists, two real (laughs) scientists talking about this idea on a podcast specifically about Star Trek Mm -hmm. is like the perfect like neutral zone territory to talk about this because yeah the the giggle factor it's a few things it's the giggle factor related to sci-fi that sci-fi is celebrated we all love uh, most astronomers love some kind of science fiction uh, but we are always quick to point out that we're real scientists we're not just like speculating about whatever arthur c Clarke wrote about or whatever the other issue is related to that is the sort of cranks the the pseudoscientists and the UFOologists and the patterns in cornfields and people feeling they've been abducted, these communities have also co-opted a lot of what would be SETI research. Um, the, the saying that I heard recently about astronomy outreach is, if you don't do outreach about your science, the pseudoscientists will. Hmm. Somebody will find out, will, will see a tweet about it or an article you wrote and will misconstrue it into something that is absurd or obscene. Uh, and it will end up in the weird fringes of society. Like there, there is interest in things that are pseudoscientific. And man, astronomy really falls into that hole hard. And so SETI has been an area that has been co-opted a lot by people wearing tinfoil hats. And that has caused the sort of amplification of the giggle factor. Um, my take is that very few scientists, very few astronomers would look at SETI and say like, oh, that is without merit wholesale. I think we have been trained rightly so, to be very efficient about what we do, to make our grant dollars go as far as they can, to make principled arguments about what is sensible, what we can observe, what we can theorize, what we can model, what we can simulate. And it becomes very difficult to look at a problem that has almost no bounding in parameter space that you can draw. We don't know what we're looking for or when we should look for it or with what. We just know that we need to look. Uh, and I think the scope of it also contributes to the, the hesitation to adopt it. But I'm glad you said the word biosignatures because that gets back to branding. And the SETI community has gotten very keen in the last couple of years to use this word technosignatures, which is the close cousin to biosignatures, which is if we are going to look for biological signatures of life, absorption lines in a spectrum, for example, we should be open to looking for technological signatures of life as well. So things that would be strange signals in your data or, or even artifacts, right? Like going back to going back to the truly pseudoscience, what if we found like an abandoned Jeep on Mars? Huh. You know, like that would be a huge techno signature. Somebody would have had to have driven it there. Yeah. Um, that's kind of an absurd example. But like looking for um, evidence of past civilizations mm-hmm. within the solar system, looking for artifacts, dead satellites, remnant civilization indicators – this is, if not directly astrobiology, it's got to be related to astrobiology. And while it clearly shouldn't be our top priority, I think it'd be a huge mistake for it not to be a priority. Does this pursuit of a name astroarchaeology or something like that? Because it sounds... Yeah. Yeah, it, that, that has a nice ring to it. <laughs> it does, it does. Astroarchaeology. I think this actually is... I mean, it's like the xenobotany or whatever from Star Trek, right? Yeah, like the, yeah. I think it is a term that maybe has been used in Star Trek. We should fact-check that canon mm-hmm, as well, mm-hmm, but... Mm-hmm. Again, it, the number of objects in which we can do archaeology on is very small. But we should not dismiss it out of hand. Like, we have to admit, as I mean, this goes back to like the core tenets of science, we have to admit that the possibility is out there. So we have to do due diligence and look. Somebody has to be looking for these things. I want to back up and just say, like, I was a big SETI at home fan. I did install the screensaver and it ran 
cooking my parents' little Pentium 1 processor for, <laughs> for years, finding nothing. And I was always fascinated by the beautiful graph that was running in real time on it as it was basically just doing like fast Fourier transforms in real time, like constantly. I got to meet recently, like a year ago, some of the people who developed that, who are working at the SETI Institute and working with the Breakthrough Listen people in Berkeley. And it was fascinating to hear them talk about how they would how they would set this up and, and, and that realization that enough PCs had ended up in homes that they had access to essentially the biggest supercomputer on the planet if they could just convince people to install a, a screensaver. And so for a while, they were like actually competitive as one of the largest supercomputing facilities in the world just through this like passive screensaver running so many hours a day, which I thought was just, it's just a fantastic story. And I, and I too like made this promise to myself that if I ever quote unquote made it as a scientist, if this was something that I was going to study, that I would be true to myself and and thinking about aliens would not be out of my practice, that I would at least spend some time thinking about it. And so not to bury the lead too much, but like one of the reasons we're going to talk about this paper that I wrote is because I feel like I'm reaching an inflection point in my career where I have to think about how much longer I'm doing this job and what my next job title will be. And I thought, God, if, if this job is coming to an end, I need to write this paper. Many people outside of academia may not realize it, but many post-PhD jobs are really short-term or have very little job security. A lot of postdoc appointments are only two to three years, some as short as one. And many scientist positions are quote-unquote soft money, which means you have to keep applying for and winning grants on the timescale of a few years, or else you don't get paid. It's nothing like being a tenured professor or having a permanent position, say, at a national lab. It's a scary, volatile existence. And we could honestly take a whole other episode to talk about that aspect of academia. Before we get to the paper, yeah. let's draw in a little bit of Star Trek. Yeah, though. So absolutely. Do you remember this Voyager episode called Future's End? It was a two-parter where they go back in time to Los Angeles. And in this episode, um, Sarah Silverman actually plays a SETI astronomer named Rain Robinson. Excuse me. Do not enter. Employees only. The sign on the door. Uh, I'm sorry. I think we're a little lost. We were on the museum tour and we took a wrong turn at the Saturn exhibit. Perhaps you could tell us how to get back to the lobby. Go back down the hall, take a left at Mars, right at Halley's Comet, and then just keep going straight ahead past the soda machine. This lab is uh, pretty groovy. Groovy. What do you do here? We watch the skies. For what? Signs of extraterrestrial life. Nice meeting you. And I feel like this character actually very much embodies the kind of perspective that a lot of people have about SETI. So Rain Robinson, the astronomer, is portrayed as a sort of eccentric person. She's all alone in Griffith Observatory. Right, she's like in Griffith. It's supposed yeah. to be some kind of like remote facility yeah. It's just up the hill from like the Hollywood sign. Exactly. If you've ever been to Griffith Observatory, you know it's never that empty. Yet... She's the only one there in this very dark, cluttered office. And that office is just like an absolute mess. She seems like she is this 
desperate astronomer just hoping for a signal from out there. And, uh, and, and I feel like this depiction of her situation is almost very symbolic of our <laughs> perception of SETI itself, yeah. the, the endeavor. Like, well, that's just some crazy person in their dark corner hoping that there is a signal coming down. It's very, like, monastic, right? Like, it's very yeah. much like a monk hiding away, waiting for divine inspiration, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it has very much elements of that, that we've shuttered ourselves away in this pure pursuit. Yeah. It's, it's very fancy, I want to know who funded that. Like, I want to know in like in Star Trek canon, did she have an NSF award? Like, was it a career grant? Like, how how did she afford at this mythical observatory that she was cloistered in? How did she afford to actually like? What grant was paying for that? I am going to have to look this up because I don't remember for sure. But I think she was being funded by a very rich, like super billionaire person. Yeah who was so rich because uh, he found technology from the future. Right. Yeah. Mr. Tuvok, report. Lieutenant Paris and I are at the Griffith Observatory in the Hollywood Hills. We have modified the satellite dish transmitter to carry and receive Voyager communication frequencies. I regret the bad connection. It's quite all right, Mr. Tuvok. What's happened? We have become associated with a young woman employed at the astronomical laboratory. It was she who sent the message to Voyager. But her lab is under the supervision of an individual named Henry Starling. Oh, we've met Mr. Starling. He has the time ship, and he's the one who will cause the disaster in the 29th century. Then it would seem we must find a way to stop him. Tell me about this young woman. Can we trust her? She and Lieutenant Paris appear to be bonding on a cross-cultural level. I would have to say yes. I do remember that episode, and... (laughs) And it is one of those, like, hilarious depictions of astronomy because, like, there are parts of it that are very true. Like, there's a lot of this job that is lonely just sitting in front of a computer waiting for whatever is right to pop out, whether it's SETI or not. And then, yeah, then there's, of course, like, whenever television touches on your particular area of expertise and, like, your job, you laugh at what is, like, oversimplified or whatever. But, like, there's a lot about it. Okay, so she's funded by a billionaire. That is not dissimilar from, like, what a lot of SETI research actually is done now. Mm-hmm. Um, the Breakthrough Project, for example, yeah. is a huge pot of money put together by a lot of very wealthy people, not just for SETI research, but for breakthroughs in technology and in areas of science that would otherwise not be funded. And indeed, some of the places where we've been applying for SETI funding right now has been through other private foundations thinking like, Hey, the Breakthrough Foundation got in on this. Maybe you, uh, maybe you want to get in on this too, private foundation or philanthropist or science fan. Maybe you want to get in on this. So, like, yeah, it, it is kind of an intriguing viewpoint, which has not changed in the twenty-five years or whatever since that episode came out. All right. So, diving into your paper now, you use and write about this term called the cosmic haystack cosmic haystack yeah which uh invokes the idea that the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is like looking for a proverbial needle in a very large cosmic haystack and the reason why it is cosmic is not just because the universe is so vast but because Mm. it's a whole parameter space as you write in your study so what exactly is the cosmic haystack so i have to of course give credit i didn't invent this term um i think this term i believe goes back to jill tarter uh, but Jason Wright and his students wrote a paper in 2018 which tried to write down plausibly what the cosmic haystack, what the volume of the universe or observables we needed to search for was. And I think they came up with like an eight or a nine dimensional 
space that they envision. And, and by dimensional space, what I mean is like, if you're gonna design a survey for something or a search for something, you need to consider when are you looking? That'd be one dimension. How long are you going to look? Uh, in what wavelength or radio channel or what color of light or what spectral frequency? That's a parameter space. And what area of the sky and how sensitive is your search going to be? And like, so all of these, like literally how long are you gonna turn your detector on and where are you going to put it? And how are you going to scan it back and forth? And how often will you re revisit this area? This ends up defining like an eight or a nine dimensional space where we don't really have any idea of what the signals might be coming from. If you were to look for a lighthouse, a lighthouse would be really ineffective if it only blinked once a day or if it only blinked in one direction. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, we have this sort of like anthropological standpoint about like, okay, a lighthouse is supposed to warn you about like a cliff or something. So it's got to spin so that it covers as much area as possible and has to spin relatively quickly so that you see it again and again and again before you end up running. You know, So the duty cycle of that lighthouse has to be faster than the plausible time scale you would run your ship aground. Mm -hmm. So there's like a really specific context there. And we just have none of that context when it comes to what is the signal an alien might want to send. So this is what we call passive SETI, where we're just, we're just looking for signals. Yeah, it, looking for a needle in a haystack I think is an apt analogy because we're looking for something in something that's very, very large. But the maybe the better analogy is when you start devising plausible search strategies, you end up looking for a needle in a haystack full of needles or a haystack <laughs> that's made of, instead of hay, it's, it's a needle stack. And you don't necessarily even know what you're looking for. A cosmic needle stack. Like all of a sudden you might find, <laughs> you can d develop a search which seems very plausible. Okay, we're gonna look for this kind of signal which has this kind of repetition for this sort of lighthouse. And you end up finding 10 million of them. It's like, well, that was a mistake. Like, we ended up just discovering pulsars again. <laughs> like, you could just plausibly rediscover things. Yeah. So how has this cosmic haystack or cosmic needle stack been searched by previous iterations of SETI? Most SETI has focused on radio astronomy. There's a lot of good reasons for it. Um, some of them are historical, that like the radio community, um, I think, has some of the right literature and the right terminology for these kinds of things. But a lot of it just is like... The radio community adopted this first, and they just kept doing it. Over here. These are radio wave readouts. It looks like radio telescope transmissions. Pretty basic. Some of the earliest SETI work in, like, the 60s established that there is this special frequency band called, like, the water hole, hmm. which is a great term because it is both a frequency band where radio waves are not usually absorbed, from interstellar gas or dust due to like the resonance of like water molecules. And so they, they transmit well over long distances without getting like obscured or distorted. Mm -hmm. So it's a good frequency to look at, like astrophysically we think. There's not a lot of dust that would absorb that wavelength of light or that radio frequency, that radio channel. Yeah, because water is like the third most common molecule in the universe. And, right. and if you take the assumption that life requires water, Right. And uh, you, you make the assumption that an alien civilization is on a what Star Trek would call an M-class planet. Right. Uh, you know, it has water on its surface. It has water in its atmosphere. Right. Uh, by definition of being habitable, then aliens would need to look through that atmosphere, and you don't want anything that would be absorbed by water. Right. That's really cool. Yeah, and and like yeah, again, going back to like interstellar dust, which a lot of like radio astronomy is like looking at H1 or various like dusty, clumpy gas out in the outskirts of the galaxy. This water frequency is a good frequency to look for things that span a long distance. 
It's also a good title because the waterhole, like if you think about lots of animals come to congregate oh, at the waterhole. That didn't even pop into my mind. Right, like it's, it has a good double entendre yeah. quality to it. So I think it evokes the right idea. So the waterhole is where a lot of radio astronomy is built. So there's a specific frequency um, that they will be looking for emission or for signals or pulses at. Most of the work that's done is getting access to big telescopes, big radio telescopes, basically large satellite dish looking things and going to nearby stars, pointing them at nearby stars, surveying maybe a few hundred of these stars for a few hours in this frequency regime, this sort of channel. It's like tuning your radio dial to that station and then just seeing if the star does anything. And that's like a little like, that's maybe a little sarcastic of a description, but that's kind of what it is. Like you don't know what you're looking for. Maybe you're looking for little beeps or little chirps or a little like Morse code kind of things. Hmm. But they're just studying it. So a lot of the surveys are like, we spent 50 hours looking at these nearby stars in these frequency bands. So that's where that um, sort of lonely astronomer just waiting for something to happen yeah. picture comes in, into mind. Right. And like they're and just listening effectively. So if I read your paper correctly, you're proposing a brand new approach to SETI. You're advocating for the use of relatively new astronomical surveys that were not built to perform SETI per se, but that are gathering a wealth of data that can be interrogated for SETI purposes. That's right. I think that's exactly it. Is that is it's flipping the problem around is that Instead of going out and looking for specific data sets that are targeted for SETI observations, which are expensive, we're already spending an enormous amount of money and energy and people time into building huge surveys. I happen to work on optical surveys, so these are things that are looking for like transiting exoplanets or looking for supernova, or in my case, looking for stellar flares or other kinds of variable stars. For more information on stellar flares, like the one that Voyager flies through in the opening of every episode, check out Jim's previous Strange New Worlds appearance on episode 65. And so these surveys are producing huge maps of the sky, effectively movies of the sky, if we're talking about the optical. And we might as well utilize this available data for SETI work. It's like very utilitarian, like we're producing this data anyways we should look at these data for SETI signatures, for techno signatures. Now, the biggest problem we have is that the last 50 years of SETI work, little that it's been, has been on the radio. And so there's, there is really a lack of literature, a lack of ideas about these kinds of signatures, what these lighthouses would look like. Or if we, maybe not lighthouses, maybe it's homing beacons, maybe it's walkie-talkies, maybe it's, um, maybe we're looking for television, <laughs> right? Maybe we're looking for uh, runway, landing strip lights, you know, yeah. things that are like signposts. So there's a lot of analogies in everyday life that might show up as bright lights right. or, or things. They found us, all right. The orbital schematic matches Voyager's position. According to this data, they are tracking the warp emissions from our engines. <sighs> Nobody in this century even knows what warp emissions are. Nevertheless... It appears they've configured their telescope to scan for them. And so part of this paper is just saying this is an opportunity that I think has gone under-noticed. It's, I hope, a call to action for people like me, people like you who have astrobiology interests, to come together. You know, we sort of come from different um, strong points of our, we work in the same department, and we, we sort of exist in different um, camps. The astrobiology camp, which thinks a lot about what life would look like. Mm -hmm. And I work in sort of the software and big survey and big data group, which thinks about what is it that our data can provide? 
and what kind of products can we make out of our data? I dream of bringing those communities of people together. I want to bring the astrobiologists who think a lot about biology and chemistry and the search for uh, atmosphere signatures. I want to bring those people to the table with people who are producing catalogs of supernova and exoplanets and bring them together and see what, what kind of signals can we conceive of? Because I think that's what's missing. Is I have some ideas. They're probably really concocted, really silly ideas, but they're ideas. And we just need a million more of those ideas because all it takes, the data already exists, all it takes is just computer time. We just gotta tell, we just need the new SETI at home or whatever to go and just compute these things if we can be imaginative. Let's talk a little bit about the surveys themselves that are gathering all of this wonderful data. In your paper, you mention a couple, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS, the Zwicky Transient Facility, or ZTF, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, or LSST. LSST was just recently renamed the Vera C. Rubin Observatory, after the discoverer of dark matter. That makes it the first national observatory to have been named for a woman. About time, right? And the Every Scope, I think. Every Scope. Every Scope. Yes, I so, love Every Scope. So, um, you know, there there are four of them. So uh, I don't know if you want to run through each of them briefly, or just talk about your favorite. But how how does this work for somebody who's not an astronomer? Right. So each of these surveys all exist in again the visible light domain, and they're very different. They all have different goals. And, that, and I should also note they're all funded, which so this, <laughs> this is all not theoretical. These all exist. So they all have different science goals. What they all have in common is they repeatedly take pictures with big fancy cameras that are basically just big brothers of the cell phone cameras we have in our pockets. They just take repeated, very precise pictures of areas of the sky. Now in the case of TESS, it takes like a little sliver of the sky and it observes that sliver of the sky for like a month. And then it moves and observes another sliver of the sky. And its goal is to take high speed images once every minute or a couple minutes. And it's looking for little dips from transiting exoplanets that pass in front of their host star. Meanwhile, it's finding these great repeated images of lots of stars. Whereas facilities like ZTF or LSST are bigger areas. So they will survey the entire night sky every couple of days. So it's not as a precise stare at one, uh, at one region, but instead it's pass back and forth, back and forth over the entire sky, getting a sort of once a day or once every couple of days time cadence for the entire sky for like many, many years. Um, so the, the area is different, the area covered is different, the stare time or the observation time is different, but the, the commonality is they're repeatedly looking at stars and galaxies and everything else that's, uh, that's bumping around out there, asteroids and all kinds of things. What I love about the Every Scope is it is this funny, it looks kind of like, not to jump off brand here, but it kind of looks like the top of R2-D2. <laughs> Don't all telescope domes sort of remind you of R2-D2? <laughs> yes, they absolutely do, they absolutely do. But this isn't the dome, this is the oh. top of the telescope. The telescope oh. is this funny dome itself that has, I forget how, 13 or something little camera lenses mounted in it in a little hemisphere and that whole hemisphere turns as the night sky turns and so it just uses big essentially big camera lenses to trace the night sky and so it's getting super wide area coverage in fact it monitors almost the entire night sky constantly and it's getting high time cadence so it's taking a picture every couple of minutes of the entire night sky with these little cameras so instead of this giant house-sized telescope which looks at very faint objects 
these cameras aren't much different than what I'm taking my video with right now. Mm -hmm. um, so they're not getting super faint stars, uh, but they're getting all of the bright stars. And so the time and space coverage is huge. Um, and so it turns out that that telescope, which was very small, which was sort of a pet project by Nick Law at North Carolina, that telescope, which was built on a dime effectively, is getting the SETI haystack coverage that's equivalent to the multi tens of millions of dollar projects like LSST because it's just covering so much sky and we don't know what we're looking for. That's amazing. Yeah, the Everyscope out of out of those four was the one that I had never heard of before. So I'm glad you explained that to me. It, that's amazing. It's like putting a, a bunch of wide angle lenses yeah. on a little rotating device and just exactly. watching. Exactly. Wow. So these these telescopes are gathering all of this data through the dimensions of space and time. Uh, and I love this comparison that you make in your paper. You write that previous haystack searches were like searching for fish in a hot tub or small swimming pool compared to Earth's oceans, whereas the uh, results for SETI with optical surveys, such as the ones we just talked about, are closer to looking at like one to two Olympic-sized swimming pools compared to Earth's oceans. So we're getting still not you know the entire cosmos but a much larger fraction of it than we used to that's right and that's an analogy i borrowed again from jason wright's haystack paper and he talking with me he said he claimed that it, the survey volume that radio astronomy was covering was something like a hot tub or maybe a large sauna uh, as compared to the earth's oceans that was the ratio of the volume they were searching for and how would you characterize the life in the oceans if all you had was a hot tub's worth of the ocean hmm. Like you would not know that much about the biology or the or anything about the oceans if all you had was a hot tub's worth. Some other authors have contested that and said that that's too optimistic. That it's probably more like a pint glass. <laughs> if you had a pint glass worth of the ocean and you really looked at it for a long time, I will note, however, you would probably find life. Yeah, the oceans are teeming with life. Absolutely. But that's right. So if if the hot tub analogy holds, then we're something like a couple of like a factor of 10 to 100 bigger, which puts it in the regime of a few swimming pools. And I'm not saying that you would find whales inside that swimming pool. I'm just saying a whale would actually fit in that swimming pool as opposed to a hot tub. And mm -hmm. so it would actually be possible to find whales with a couple of swimming pools. You have to be super lucky, though. But what you probably would find with a couple of well-chosen swimming pools worth of the ocean, you might find vertebrae life. You might find little crustaceans. You might actually find fish. You might know something about the chemistry of the ocean. So opening our eyes to a larger slice of this multidimensional space allows us to capture technosignatures that exist on, I guess, grander scales. Yeah. So you and your paper, you, you didn't just advocate for SETI. You actually did a little bit of SETI. A very um, tiny amount, yeah. yeah. So you actually conducted searches through the data set of exoplanet transits that the Kepler Space Telescope gathered and you looked for odd clusterings of planet transits that would be beacons of extraterrestrial intelligence. So can you talk a little bit about how you did this and what you found yeah, or I, didn't find? I, yeah, what I didn't find, yeah. So I did not, spoiler, I did not find <laughs> evidence of alien intelligence yet. Um, I love this, this example because um, it's both, I think, really promising and really straightforward computationally. So it's really a good candidate here. And also, it's gotten like the most eye rolls from other professional astronomers. That they, <laughs> they say like, oh, okay, this is completely contrived. And I say, yeah, of course it is, because that's the limit of my imagination. And this is why we have to have this conversation. So it's completely contrived, and I'm okay with that. So the idea is that we see transits around these 
stars with some regularity. We see planets that are going around these stars and passing in front of their host stars. That was the whole mission that Kepler was built on. That's the whole point of the test mission as well, is finding these systems where the planet is just in the right spot and it passes in front of its host star. And we think we understand some of the physics about how these systems get there and how these planets form. There's a lot of debate about how many planets there are and what that transit occurrence rate means. But one thing that we can agree on is that separated by cosmic distances of many light years, these planets going around different stars, two different planets going around two different stars, should know nothing about each other. Like they should have formed in a totally independent way and they shouldn't know anything about each other. And so I started imagining what if a civilization wanted to get noticed by people looking for exoplanets, by people looking for transiting planets, because it does seem like it seems to us now in our 2019 vision that transiting signatures are an efficient and good way to look for planets. That's why we're spending so much time doing it. And so how would you go about getting noticed? Uh, and one way I postulated was what if you had planets that say transited at exactly the same time as each other that were separated by huge distances so they couldn't plausibly have known to coordinate themselves. What if you had coordination? This is what the beginning of my thought here. What if you had coordination between transiting exoplanets? So planets that eclipsed at exactly the same time or planets that had some pattern to how they eclipsed, you know, some sort of coordination. Um, and that's kind of a hard thing to write down and state numerically what you mean. And so one way I very simply looked for this was what if there were planets that had, okay, forget about when they transited, what time they transited. What if they all just had exactly the same orbital period? So here on Earth, we orbit the sun once every 365 days. And what if there were a bunch of transiting exoplanets and nearby stars that also had exactly 365-day orbital periods? What if there was a little cluster in space of planets that had exactly the same orbital period? That would be totally unexpected. Nature should have some kind of variation. Planets form at all kinds of different, I mean, Mercury is 80 days and Jupiter is whatever, 12 years, whatever it is. So there's a huge variation. Why should we see things that are exactly the same over big cosmic distances? And so looking for little clusters in space of planets that have unusually similar orbital properties was the example that I came up with, which is very simple to calculate. Just looking for little clumps I think I did three or four stars. Look for every little three or four star pairing that you can find and compare how similar their orbital period of their transiting planet was. And we find that it's all just noise. There is no like <laughs> obvious, that the, the planets don't know about each other, that it's just seemingly random. There is no apparent grand design or grand scheme to how these things are orbiting. And that's fine. Like it's okay if the answer is zero, null because that just means we can keep looking. It took three seconds for my computer to calculate this once I figured out how to write it down. So every time somebody releases a new catalog of transiting exoplanets, I can just do this calculation again and see if there's any unusual outlier that pops out. That is survey SETI. That is SETI with big surveys. Yeah, I love this because you're thinking very creatively about new ways to look for signs of extraterrestrial intelligence. And the method that you just described to me, the phenomenon that you're looking for, really reminds me of some of the agnostic biosignatures mm. that people are proposing when they're looking for life elsewhere, say in situ, you know, going and sampling some of Enceladus's ocean or Europa's ocean. 
because people can't assume that life on Europa or Enceladus would have the exact same chemical makeup as life here on Earth. Um, you can't look for specific chemicals. You have to look for some kind of unexpected pattern in chemistry that would be significant enough of a deviation from just a normal distribution of chemicals made abiotically. And that sort of surprise factor or that metric of complexity is then a agnostic biosignature. So what you're looking for on the scale of planets to search for civilizations that span multiple star systems really reminds me of that because you're essentially looking for an unexpected pattern or an unexpected yeah. signal. And that could be then perhaps caused by a civilization altering these many planetary systems near their home system to produce a signal that would be recognizable by astronomers such as yourself. So the cynics would say, like, why? Why would somebody make this? I don't know. <laughs> like, if you just showed up, if you were a whale and you suddenly became aware of lighthouses, like, it would be very plausible that there are dolphins and whales and other very intelligent animals and octopi out there going, like, what, what are these things? Why do they keep building these blinking lights <laughs> right next to our water? Yeah. What is the point of this? Like, without a frame of reference, it's meaningless. And yet they exist on Earth. We build all kinds of things that seem probably very curious to highly intelligent forms of life on our own planet. So I don't know. I don't know why this would exist. The point is just we can look for it. And it's computationally very tractable. It's very efficient. There are all kinds of other, you know, going uh, even bigger scales, you know, going even to grander scales of the galaxy. You know, what if we saw a supernova in a nearby galaxy, let's say? Totally normal. Nothing to be alarmed at. Very interesting. Lots of astronomers will be excited to watch it. Uh, in fact, a lot of these surveys are designed specifically to look for supernova because they're really neat. And then what if you saw another star? So the supernova is off to our left. And then what if we saw a star off to our right replay that supernova, like rebroadcast it? What if that star just got brighter and mimicked the supernova, like echoed it back hmm. at us or at everyone? Right? What if it just, just sent it out as like, we saw that too? What if we just used the signal itself and repeated it back? out into the cosmos just saying, hey, we just saw this. We are a civilization, right? The subtext would be, we are a civilization that is aware of supernova and aware that other people might be watching these events too, right? There are these galactic scale or cosmological scale events, supernova or gamma ray bursts or things that are like rare enough and big enough that lots of people should see them. If you're trying to find people in a very, very isolating place like the galaxy, a forest that we have no idea how many trees are in there, Waving your phone or waving your signal lamp is not a trivial thing. You don't know what kind of signal lamp to look for. And so referencing or playing off of a very rare, big, bright event would be a good way to uh, get other people's attention, for example. So there's a lot of interesting like game theory about how you bring people together and what sort of things people look for if they have to discover each other. Jason Wright points out that these are called shelling points, I think. These points of like reference or communication that people would implicitly arrive at if they were exploring a game or a new space or had some sort of shared mission? How would they find each other? How would they know how to come together? So the, the water hole that you mentioned before, that would be a shelling point. Right, exactly. It would, be, it would be both a frequency that aliens would be more likely to transmit and also be more likely to be listening on because nature has provided it as a, an obvious, a quote unquote, obvious place to be transmitting. And these other shelling points that you've just brought up or, or these other beacons or extraterrestrial lighthouses that you've uh, suggested, they all 
might be possible for a civilization with a much grander level of technological development than yeah. we currently have. Yeah. Are there any technosignatures that can be looked for in the optical wavelengths in the, in the data sets that we have that a civilization at about our level or just a little bit more advanced would be able to produce? I think this is a huge area of opportunity, which is a fancy way of saying I don't know. <laughs> One area that I can think of is to be noticed at any wavelength of light, you have to be able to outshine or outblock the light of your parent's star. Hmm. So it turns out it's easier to block light because you just have to put anything in front of it. But that means you have to move rocks or a blanket or something into space to cover up the sun. And that is incredibly hard to do. But uh, large transiting objects are possibly doable. You could imagine some giant uh, mylar blanket that we put out in outer space to make a fake planetary eclipse. But that, even at our current technology, would be hard. One thing we can do is outshine the sun, or maybe at least equally shine relative to the signal of Earth's transit using lasers. So one of the brightest things we have are big, bright optical lasers. And so there was a paper by David Kipping and his grad student Alex Tichy a couple years ago where they posited you could make Earth's transit signature disappear using a laser if you knew where to point it and when. So if an alien was looking at our solar system and waiting for the Earth to pass in front of the sun and cause that tiny little transit dip, and then they would say, oh, look, there's a little rocky planet there. You could use a laser shown right at those aliens, bright enough to fill in the missing light that Earth blocks from the sun, thus cloaking the planet's transit. Wow, a planet-sized cloaking device. Yeah. But instead of deflecting light around it, actually emitting light so that the transit signal would go away. That's yeah, so filling in the missing light yeah. that Earth blocks or passes in front of. So this would be a way to hide, for example. And so one possible signal would be looking for transiting planets that just all of a sudden miss a transit. Again, it's very easy to search for, and it would be the signature of somebody trying to hide themselves or get your attention, that they are aware that you might be watching them. The other interesting thing is that as radio communication gets more sophisticated on Earth, it also becomes more scrambled, um, right? So things are like encoded, and it may be indecipherable from just noise. And so even though we're producing bigger and louder radio transmitters, like from the military or from airplanes or things like that that are talking to airports, it might just look like garbled noise. It might not seem like intelligent signals from Earth. And so even though our newest radio telescopes possibly could detect an airport at 50 or 100 light years away, is what the thought is, that if they knew exactly where to look, you could possibly detect signals from an airport really? within like tens of parsecs away. Wow. Uh, yeah, which is a spectacular, like human scale thing. It might not register as an interesting signal. It might just look like noise. Mm -hmm. Because if that airport is using like encoded communication, like a lot of military transmissions are, it's not going to seem like an intelligent Morse code kind of pattern. Very interesting. Yeah. Wow. Quite a conundrum. Yeah, there's so many possibilities when it comes to trying to imagine what an extraterrestrial civilization would imagine for themselves to, you know, just build their civilization. And then also when you think about what somebody else would use to signal their presence, yeah. um, you know, we've cycled through a bunch of different possibilities, but... It's getting to that point, I think, where this was a really good time to write your paper, to galvanize the scientific community, to devote a little bit more brain power to this question. Uh, like you said at the top of the episode about one FTE in the United States goes towards SETI. And if we could just ramp that up a little bit, 
like a few. Yeah, <laughs> we, we could uh, we could uh, revolutionize SETI. I suppose your paper is right. a call to, to revolutionize our search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Find those Klingons, Romulans, or Vulcans out there if, if they're indeed trying to make their presence known um, through any of these signaling uh, methods, or I guess if they have a, a time suit, red bursts. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you know that I was free yesterday, so they're welcome to show up. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. I think I would say my, my closing thought mm-hmm. is that, okay, we haven't detected aliens yet. Yeah. And I haven't conducted that many of these statistical searches yet. But what I have been able to do because of this paper is have this conversation a few more times with both people in the general public and also scientists. And I think both of those conversations are important. People need to think that this is something we're thinking about because it is. And I need my colleagues, my learned colleagues in this building and other buildings to spend just a little bit of time dreaming because somewhere out there is the genius who's going to crack this nut. It's not me. That's okay. Like, it doesn't have to be me. If I can just be a part of that, then I think that eight-year-old inside of me is going to be really satisfied. Exactly, right? Maybe that genius is an eight-year-old kid uh, thinking about becoming a SETI astronomer, and maybe that person sees your paper and is like, well, I don't know if eight-year-olds yeah. write paper, but you know what I mean. It's like when we were kids, we thought, yeah, SETI is, you know, I'm going to grow up and do SETI. Uh, and then we got here, and we're barely even doing it or scratching it, and you, you've, yeah. you've, you've written this paper, and... So maybe, you know, like I said, a revolution to where SETI is in the forefront of astronomical sciences. Maybe there is an eight-year-old out there who's listening to Strange New Worlds. That would be awesome. And thinks, I don't know if this field is for me. And here's that, like, we do spectacular and awe-inspiring work sometimes. And sometimes mm-hmm. we get to dream really deeply about the biggest questions out there, about the things that I would lay awake at night thinking about when I was eight years old. That's a lovely place to end it. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me again on Strange New Worlds, Jim. It was my absolute Uh, pleasure. That was Dr. Jim Davenport, an astronomer at the University of Washington. You can follow Jim on Twitter at J.R.A. Davenport, and don't forget to watch his astrovlog series on YouTube. So, why'd you become an astronomer? My brother had a telescope, a little refractor. You could barely see in the treehouse next door, actually, but it was enough. It was enough to see the rings of Saturn. I remember, I remember I used to think that they looked like jewels from a pirate's treasure. All I ever wanted since then was to reach up and touch them. Whether you're eight, 18 or 80, keep dreaming your dreams, especially if they involve searching for signs of alien life. There are so many possibilities out there, so many extraterrestrial lighthouses that we may not have even been able to imagine yet. I bet it'll take a massive amount of collaboration and cleverness to discover them, or perhaps it'll just take sheer dumb luck But you make your own luck in this business, and you'll never get anywhere if you don't try. That's what Jim is telling us in his paper. It's a very Star Trek message. Look up, be curious, be bold, and just try. You never know what's beyond that next star. Until next time.
See you out there. Agent Tuvok, what's up?